the idea of a protocol really emerged out of our initial work with um, the big grassroots one-to-one -one movement in Iowa, where we went from six districts giving kids laptops to 220 districts in six years. It was this incredibly fast pace. But, you know, we got three, four years into that, and we were finding the districts were just stuck on the tech integration side. They were still doing the same kind of instructional practices with tech yeah. after these massive investments that they had done before they had the tech, right? Yeah. So we're trying to figure out a way to get them unstuck. And so my writing colleague and protocol colleague, Julie, um, she and I were trying to figure out what's out there that helps people move. And the frameworks like SAMR and TPAC and uh, tech integration matrices from Arizona and Florida, and so like they just didn't have everything that we wanted in them. Yeah. So we tried to cobble and beg, borrow, and steal pieces and parts from different places. And there's actually on the Four Shifts Protocol website, a list of all the things we looked at. Listen up, educators. Are you looking to take your classroom to the next level? The technological shift in education is happening right now. If you're looking to integrate technology into your classroom, you're in the right place. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools with your host, Jeff Udick. Well, welcome back to Shifting Our Schools. Thank you for tuning in this week. And I find myself on the road this week here in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia where I'm coming to you at the moment before I jump back on a plane to head back to Seattle and doing work that uh, next week, back with some schools uh, back in my hometown. So, But it's been a great week here uh, in Kuala Lumpur. I'm at the Iracoast Leadership Conference, and Iracoast is a regional organization ran by the Department uh, of Overseas uh, out of America. And they, they really what it is is it's like a, an educational service district or a educational uh, district that oversees a bunch of the international school service, not oversees them, I guess, just supports them. Um, and, and that's what this is. It's a conference for leadership, almost 1200 people, uh, administrators, whether they be school heads, board members, uh, principals, uh, curriculum directors, all gathered here, uh, almost 1,200 people coming from international schools all over the Asia region. And it's been just a great week of uh, some great keynotes. We had a keynote on a researcher looking at why Finland uh, is always coming out in PISA scores and some of the lessons they're learning uh, from research-based lessons they're learning from Finland. I'm excited to bring that back to the schools that I'm working with. Uh, and then we also had just other great keynotes. And, and the overall theme continues to be the same, is that how do we prepare students for their future, not our past? And everywhere I go, that seems to be like you can boil it down to that sentence, right? How are we preparing kids for their future and not our past? And and um, so it's been a great week of, of doing presentations, been doing presentations throughout, and then just having a lot of conversations with where international schools are and what their next move is. But uh, by far the best part uh, of coming here was getting to sit down with Scott McLeod. And that's today's episode. You heard that in the opening. And Scott has just released uh, his new book, and uh, I am so excited about it. He actually uh, was kind enough to give me a copy, and I've read it already here. Uh, it's not very long. I think, like, I'm looking at it right now. I think it's like 60-some pages, 63, 64 pages. And it's called Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning. And what I love about this is it actually gives us something new. It gives us something to help teachers with, and it takes... Everything we've been trying to do with the SAMR model or the TPAC model and gives us a structure, a protocol. They're calling it the four-shift protocol to actually look at 
deeper learning with technology. And it, it's so, so good. He's been doing sessions. Scott McLeod's been doing sessions here all week. I highly encourage you to get to his blog. I highly encourage you to buy the book. Uh, it really is uh, just a great resource of trying to give you a protocol to grab a lesson and rethink how you can change a lesson um, or a unit that you're already doing to be uh, aligned with this idea of deeper thinking. And it's been a, it's just been a great week to get to talk with him. And I, I finally asked him, I was like, look, I need to get this on the podcast because people need to know about this. And uh, the book just came out last week. So you, I will put a link in the show notes to where you can buy it on Amazon. It comes with printables. Uh, my favorite part is, is as usual, as I wouldn't expect anything less from Scott, is he's released the rubric and stuff. The reprintables are all uh, Creative Commons, so people can take them and use them and give them feedback of how they're using them in their school. So it's really a great episode. I hope you really enjoy this. I had a great time talking with Scott uh, about his just, you know, his approach to the four, the four shifts protocol, where it came from, and just what he thinks is next in education. So I hope you uh, enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it with Scott. And with that, on with the show. But I love, I love <clears throat> that you take all these systems that we've used forever that are integration models. And the thing I love the most, I think, is like it is pretty, for me anyway, and maybe because you and I live in this world and we've lived in this world for so long, right. that I love their yes and no questions. Like, I would even, like, for me, I take the maybe out. It's either a yes or a no. There is no maybe. Right. You know? So maybe for the podcast, can we just talk about, um, how, like, what was your thinking behind this? Like, I know you had Tudicot, which was awesome. I used it with some districts and played around with sure. it for a little while. Right. But just like, what, where did all this come from? Like, besides, like, you're tired of the rhetoric, I guess. Right? <laughs> right. So the idea of a protocol really emerged out of our initial work with um, the big grassroots one-to-one movement in Iowa, where we went from six districts giving kids laptops to 220 districts in six years. It was this incredibly fast-paced but, you know, we got three, four years into that, and we were finding the districts were just stuck on the tech integration side. They were still doing the same kind of instructional practices with tech yeah. after these massive investments that they had done before they had the tech, right? Yeah. So we're trying to figure out a way to get them unstuck. And so my writing colleague and protocol colleague, Julie, um, she and I were trying to figure out what's out there that helps people move. And the framework's like... SAMR and TPAC and the tech integration matrices from Arizona and Florida and so like they just didn't have everything that we wanted in them. Yeah. So we tried to cobble and beg, borrow and steal pieces and parts from different places and there's actually on the Four Shifts Protocol website a list of all the things we looked at, right? Yeah. And, and um, glommed on to. Um, so, you know, then we created this awfully named acronymed protocol <laughs> called Trudicon. We started piloting it, right? And we did four years of that and finally realized that we just needed to reorganize the thing and call it something else. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where Trudicon became four shifts. But, you know, we had already piloted it with hundreds of schools and thousands of educators and they'd given us lots of good feedback about it in practice. Um, so, yeah. So the goal was to try to create a protocol that really aligned with sort of our four key things that we talk about, which is how do we move to deeper learning, student agency, authentic work and use technology as a lever to make those three happen. And I love it because technology is just a piece of the learning. 
Talk a little bit, like one of the things I loved and that it has me thinking about after reading the book is you even in the book and then even in today's session, you were like, you know, only grab one or two at a time. Like take one or two at a time. Do you think there'll be, is it, will we ever be a place where we can use all four of those? Do you, have you ever seen a lesson that you're like, is yes across the board? I think there's so much in the protocol, right? There's so right, many different yeah. things to think about and so many just sort of different dimensions. The reason that Julie and I wanted to make it that way is because we want it to be comprehensive. Because if you look at different things that are out there, they have pieces of the whole, but not all of the whole. And yeah. we wanted something that represented all of the whole. But you'll kill yourself trying to put all that, particularly into a short lesson or yeah. unit. I think, I think there's potential for most of the stuff in the protocol to be present in sort of like a really deep, rich, complex, multi-week project, Yeah. right? So sort of take that gold standard PBL model from the Buck Institute and say, all right, what's a four to six week project look like? I mean, you can maybe get a lot of that stuff in there. Right, over but, four to six weeks. Yeah, over four to yeah. six weeks, yeah. right? Um, but otherwise, you know, you've got a couple day lesson or a week long unit or whatever. There's no way. You've got to pick some focal points and just treat the protocol as a set of experiences that maybe you're shooting for over the course of a school year multiple times, right? Yeah. Do you want people to have multiple opportunities to have agency in their learning this year? Yes. Right. Then but let's focus on that. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't have to be every single day, every single lesson, but right. you can point to multiple places through the year where that happens. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm, I'm like, because one of the things I struggle with in my trainings is like I do a lot of, and we're seeing a major shift right now in America anyways, back to PBL problem-based, project-based learning. Right. Like as we come out of this, yep. out of, we come out of the testing phase. But I think you're right, is that that is a big, like in the book, I forget how you put it, but I loved it. It was like this, like, it's massive and that is the goal. Like the goal is if we could do an eight or 10 week unit, you could fit this all in. But I love being able to focus on one or two of the ideas and say, that's today's lesson. Today's lesson, we're going to focus on agency and you know, uh, creativity or whatever it happens to be or domains of knowledge, right? Like, yeah, and maybe just a couple bullet points just, within yeah. there. Yeah, Not even I the whole that. section. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and being able to just pick out like today's lesson, today's lesson is going to be, you know, these two these two things, and being able to break that down because that's what I find even, like trying to help teachers, back into project based learning is it gets so overwhelming so fast when they're trying to like think okay I've got four standards over six weeks, but if you could break it down, that's I really like that approach. Right. Yeah, and what we found is that making the leap from more traditional instructional practice to a full-blown PBL project is a really big jump for teachers. Yeah. But we can take the protocol and say, look, let's don't try to make that big a jump. Yeah. Let's just take something that you've already done or something that you're thinking about doing and let's approach that in a smaller slice, right? Let's take these couple bullet points from this section of the thing and let's see if we can shift them a little bit, right? And those little shifts add up over time but we're also doing is we're building teacher capacity and skill sets to do that more complex work yeah. in the long run, right? So maybe you can't make that leap today, but after three or four years of shifting lessons in smaller slices, you build your ability to be able to do that. to do to be ready more yeah. ready for that. Because that to me would be work. like the ultimate goal right. is to have like a challenged base unit. Right. Like thinking in units, which is really hard. Like I'm, I'm, I'm even struggling with getting teachers to think in units right. and not lesson to lesson. Right. right? That's a massive shift mm -hmm. that we're coming out of again. But thinking like I'd love to get to a place where you're like in this six-week unit, we're going to use a challenge-based model. And you can hit all of these in six weeks. 
Yeah. Right? Like, and you're going to hit one or two, you're going to hit one or two today and one or two tomorrow, and this will yeah. connect to that, you know. Um, but I love the way that you broke it down to allow that that Thanks. building of, of Thanks. blocks. We're also finding that the protocol is very accommodating of teachers' starting points and comfort levels and skill sets. Mm -hmm. So even if you and I were working on the same bullet point or the same section, right? Like within a section, you might pick different bullets than I do, and that's yeah. okay because of what we're comfortable with or ready for. Mm -hmm. But even if we're going on the same bullet point, you might go this direction, I might go that direction. You might go really far, I might go just a little bit because that's as much as I'm ready far for. You go. But all of those are moves in the direction. Yeah. At least we're moving. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the work. Like, I know uh, you've been in Denver now for... A couple of years. Two this years. Is year three. Yeah. Year three in Denver. So talk about some of the work that you're starting to do with school districts around there. Mm -hmm. And are you implementing this? Is this part of, like, your implementation with districts as you work with them? We are. So I'm starting to integrate it into some of my principal lessons, your coursework. So oh, that's when we cool. talk about instructional leadership and... Um, starting to build that in there uh, with our pre-service administrators, so that's fun. Uh, I've got a few districts that are starting to play. Uh, I'm working with a district down in Colorado Springs where I'm working with their tech coaches primarily mm. on how to do this work. Uh, i got a district up north of Boulder that gave me three of their STEM elementaries, and you know we used the protocol in the morning to redesign lessons that weren't theirs, so they got comfortable with the protocol mm -hmm. and how it works, and then we spent the afternoon redesigning stuff that was theirs, right? Mm. So, you know, had about 80 people in the room hacking yeah. that stuff. And then, right now, we've got the second largest district in Colorado, Jeffco. They've got mm -hmm. 150 schools. Wow. Uh, I have now spent large blocks of time with every single one of their building level leaders. Yeah. Uh, and instructional leaders in the central office and all 80 of their district instructional coaches. So there's probably 300 to 400 people there that have gone through the protocol and redesigned lessons with me. Wow. And then they have this new generations initiative that they're what they're calling the 21st century learning framework. And they're using the protocol and the shifts and the questions there as levers to help them move this forward in their all their schools. Are you finding that, are you finding that your way into district is through coaches? Like tech coaches, uh, can be or can be through principals. Through principals, can be through like what are most what are most districts are most districts going the coaching route, or are you finding districts willing to jump in at an admin level? It really just depends, depends on the, on the district, district mm -hmm. right, and what their context is. And yeah, where they're where they're willing yeah. to go. Yeah, actually, most folks in Colorado don't know me very well yet. Yeah, I'm new. Um, how does how does no how do people don't know know you? That's <laughs> well, like even today you were saying you know like I started blogging in two thousand and five and I'm just like yeah. do you realize there was like eight of us in two thousand five? Right, I know. Right. Well, actually, it was, yeah, it was six, you know? not five. But yeah, like you and I are blogging grandfathers. Yeah, right? exactly. I don't feel that old. We've been around a long time. I know. Blog it's crazy. Right, but if you're a principal and you don't read blogs, yeah, and, I mean, it's the same story as, as always, right? Yeah. You're still not in social media right now. It's 2018, and you don't know who those people are and whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why would you know me? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> just, but especially in a leadership realm, like I, I just right. see you as such a leader in, especially around leadership and all the work Thanks. you've been doing with Castle through the years. And well, I mean, we're trying. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Cool. All right. Anything else? I don't know. The book. Let's talk about the book. So it came out last week. Yes, Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning. It's been out about a week and a half, two weeks. It's on Amazon. It is, yes, which is great. I just ordered copies for a school district that I'm working with. <laughs> Thank you, I was Jeff. Like, I was like, it. yeah. Yes, I was like, right. Yeah, I was like, this is perfect. This is exactly. I've been working with this district yeah. for four years, and we've been taking cohorts of uh, 15 at a time. Mm -hmm. So we, we get 15 teachers and we started with, they called them connected classroom teachers were the first 15 and they were, 
The thing I loved, the, the district didn't go off of um, what was their tech readiness. It went off mindset. And so we started with those 15 the year before they went one-to-one. Perfect. And then after that, we then, like, then it starts to infuse. Not a very big district, so a district of, I think there are about 8,000 kids. So as far as districts go, not really big. But able to, 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 to move through all of their, within four years now, we've gone through every teacher in the middle school, high school. And now they're doing a whole... Um, these teachers will be taking an online course with us, with me, because they were like, what's the next step? I was like, well, the next step is I can't come in for six hours at a time. Right, sure, right. It's got to be this, like, yeah. I want them to have blogs. They need to know what RSS readers are. Right. We've got to do this right, you know, right. And, and that's where we're at. And that's where I, I love, I think this is going to be a great next next step. Because the idea around deeper learning, I struggle, I, I will admit, I struggle with the term deeper learning. Mm-hmm. And is it because, for me, it's just like, duh. I don't know. Is it like, I'm just thinking like, I think of project-based learning. I think of inquiry-based learning. I think that we've been talking about this stuff for, maybe this is part of it, right? We've been talking about this stuff for a really long time. And all of a sudden we've rebranded it as deeper learning and everybody's like, oh my gosh, we got a deeper learning. I'm just like, I don't see a difference. Well, so one of the things we know is that networked communities accelerate innovation and learning faster. Right, right. Non-networked communities, because we're throwing around ideas and resources with each other, and it allows all of us to move at a quicker pace. So, you know, those of us who have been blogging and interacting with each other in social media spaces for the last decade, right? Yeah. Like our pace of innovation and learning constantly moves ahead of our colleagues around us who aren't in those spaces. So, you know, ideas that seem old hat to us because we've been talking about them for three, five, <laughs> ten years, yeah. right, are still starting to emerge mm. in the other spaces and bubble up in ways because they have just haven't had access to that constant flow of resources and ideas like we have. Yeah. Thank so. you for explaining that because sometimes, <laughs> I, sometimes I get really frustrated. Sure, right. I'm just like... I'm like, we're still having the same conversation because we were having this conversation five years ago on the blogs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and it just Easily five like, years ago. Yeah. Blogs. Right. Yeah, but, but we, we push each other forward. Yeah. Right? And, and we all have large networks, which means that we have resources coming into us that we then share with each other, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. this virtuous circle, right? Yeah. It keeps us cycling ahead. Uh, circling back to the book, because you asked me about the book. Yeah. So as, uh, now you've read it, so you know. So the book is really set up. The beginning part talks about... Um, why do we even care about deeper learning and student agency and authentic work and technology is a lever talks about the current tools we have and why they don't seem to be working very well for us I love that part that was maybe my favorite part well thank you because uh, you know our editors of Solution Tree asked us to whittle that down because they thought that was the part that was too academic-y and not Mm. practical enough I said we have to have some context here yeah and you need to know the history Right. right. We well, need that's to what we the, thought. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we try to keep it yeah. short, but... Like, look, we're doing something new because it, it doesn't exist. Here's everything that existed. <laughs> this isn't it. That's <laughs> right. the like, part I love. We're still struggling with that work. Yeah, yeah right. I right. love that part. So then we introduced the protocol. We've got eight examples of lesson design or redesign in different grade levels and subject areas, just so people can sort of see how Julie and I approach, yeah. you know, re- redoing a lesson or unit with the protocol. And then the last chapter is really around tips and strategies and techniques and suggestions and recommendations. Yeah, and I think that for a teacher, like if a teacher picks up this book, the thing I think that I appreciated and I think that, that I could see teachers appreciated is it's like, here's the protocol, and now let's give you an example of an elementary and a senior school or middle yeah, right, school, sure. high school. And be like, well, here, here's the idea. And I love, like you even went through, like, here's the standard. Let's start with the standard. 
here's what this would look like. Or here's a lesson you're already doing. Here's what this would look right. like. Right. Here's how to tweak it a little bit and make it stronger. To make it stronger. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, teachers, we all need that concrete that concrete example. Right. Exactly. Like, and Julie and I have really struggled to find uh, books that really go in depth on rich instructional redesign and have examples in them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think about some of the understanding by design stuff from Wiggins and Matai. Yeah. And, you know, like there's some, some, there's a few out there, but, you know, for the most part, if you're like, hey, I need some really good examples of instructional redesign, you know, across grade levels and stuff, sure. there's just not a lot out yeah, there. Yeah, so true. So we're trying to sort of target that a little bit. The last chapter, a lot of that part is really aimed more at leaders in terms of how do you start working the protocol into systems. Mm-hmm. But a classroom teacher could very easily pick up any of those middle chapters. And see a couple lessons and then start trying stuff. Yeah. And even the tips and tricks for coaches, like tech coaches, I think could grab right. a lot of that stuff yes, and start absolutely. using that with you know, whether it's PD sessions or while you're sitting down with a you know a grade level team or something and use some of those as yeah. well. Yeah. So our, our so main sort of audiences that. are principals, instructional coaches, tech coaches, classroom teachers, and then maybe the occasional media specialist, curriculum director, whoever yeah. else is sort of an instructional leadership role. And my favorite part, sixty four pages. Yeah, right? I that, know. That was the goal. It was so fantastic. Get, in, get out. Like, yeah. I, it was like, <laughs> I'm just like, I, you handed me the book, and I'm like, really? And I was just like, this is perfect. Right. This is perfect. Thanks. It's this, it's, here's the history. Here's the protocol. Let's, here's what it looks like in action. Now go do it. Right. Like, here's some tips and tricks yeah. to put in there. Well, and I have to give a shout out that. to, I have to give a shout out to Bill Ferreter and the Solution Tree folks, because when they conceived of the series, right, mm. all of the books are little slim volumes like that, I right? You it. pick a topic, go in. Talk about how to change education a little bit and then pop back out again, right? But they're all practice-focused. And I think we're seeing that just more in books in general, Mm -hmm. just smaller, shorter, quick, in and out. Like, at some point, you're going to put them all together in a big book (laughs) and sell that as well. Scott McCloud, the entire volume, right? Oh, that'd be sweet. That's good, yeah. All right, so tell me, favorite app right now? Ooh, my favorite app right now is always my RSS reader. Yeah, really? Well, who, who are you using now? Always. Uh, I think I'm using Feedly right yeah, now. Yeah, Feedly, I think that's my go-to right now. Yeah, well. yeah, because that's my incoming, you know, fountain yeah. of How often do you check it? it? Oh, easily, multiple times a day. Okay. So instead of going to Facebook, you just go to Feedly. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time <laughs> in Facebook. All right. Uh, favorite educational book right now? I'm really enjoying Pam Moran and Ira Sokol's book, uh, Timeless Learning. Timeless learning. So it's right. it's absolutely fantastic. All right. Favorite non-educational book right now? Uh, favorite. Wow. Am I reading any non-education books right now? <laughs> yeah. You're 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 a professor, so this is your your livelihood. Right. right exactly. So uh, nothing's jumping to mind at the moment. Okay. So I'm I'm reading uh, uh, Shoe Dog. Okay. It's the Phil Knight story yep. from Nike. If you ever want to. Oh just, yeah. If it's a very interesting book. Like everybody's just the thing I love is you're just like, well, this, you know, this stuff just happens to people and not understanding the struggle, you know, behind creativity and, and just, and it's, it's a really, in, I, I just am really enjoying that book. So right. that for me right now, if you're, okay. if you're looking for something that's like, I find myself all the time going, no way you paid somebody $35 for the swoosh. Like, <laughs> like not knowing, right. You have no idea. Right. Absolutely. You have no idea in the moment what's going to happen. And I think that. It's just really resonating right. with a lot of where we are in education right now. Yeah, yeah. What what comes next in education for you? Where are we? Like, what, uh, what's your like? I mean, here we're here at this conference. So, just for those of you listening, we are in a conference in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, right now. Right. Doing this, and I've noticed there's at least three sessions on AI. Is that 
what, what's next? What do you think? Where do we go in education? I don't, I don't, I'm trying to figure out myself too. Right. Like, we're coming back into project-based learning, which I think is fantastic. Inquiry-based is really getting ahead of steam. We're coming out of the, the testing era. But I don't know what the next, I don't know what's next for us. Talks. I think there's going to be a lot of gimmicks. I mean, I think we're seeing play, uh, area, play kind of playtime. A lot of folks playing around with things like maker spaces and AI and uh, adaptive learning software and whatever. And I think none of those are really going to have major impacts on the learning teaching process. They're all going to sort of be around the edges and the margins. Yeah. I think what's next for us where I'm seeing some positive movement is we're seeing more and more schools get comfortable with the idea of giving kids more agency over their own learning. Mm. And that's really hard. It's really hard for us to give up control and hand it over to kids. But yeah. I just feel like the conversation is different now than it was even in just the past few years where I'm seeing more and more systems say, yeah, we got to do that. Yeah. Huh. Right? Because otherwise we're never going to reclaim kids' interest in engagement and motivation in what we do in school mm. because we've been controlling too much of it ourselves. Do you think some of that? Do you think some of that's going to come out of like I've been reading more and more districts who, are, for one reason or another, financial or contractual, are going to like a four day. Hmm. They're going to like a four day week, and are we going to be like a lot of times? Right, innovation comes when you are pressed into a situation right. where you have to be innovative. And if funding starts drying up, and some of these districts are like I'm looking at Oregon. There's some. There's oh, already some districts in Oregon sure. that are down to a four day yep. week. Is that where innovation comes in, where we start saying, oh, well, we have to give kids control over their learning because they're not going to be in front of us, in front of a whiteboard. Like Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, that's sort of happening nationwide, right? I think it really boils down to, as a district, what do you try to do with that fifth day? Do you just yeah. keep kids home and not worry about it? Or do you try to create other opportunities on the fifth day you didn't have before, right? Like. That fifth day is a great day to do service learning and community internships and yeah. right community partnerships and things that kids aren't in school anyway. Right. So have them do cool stuff in the community, right? Yeah. And start yeah. to set up those structures. Most districts aren't doing that, but the really innovative ones and thoughtful ones were like, oh, "This is an opportunity yeah. that you know before we were stuck by the school schedule and we couldn't get them off campus, but pff, now they're off campus. A, they're <laughs> off campus. They don't have a schedule. Yeah, let's make some cool stuff happen in the community, right? I love that. I and I think I wonder. I just I wonder about that. And the one thing that I I can't I'm thinking about like we're we're and I agree with you. I think we're going to see a lot of the student agency and students controlling their own learning. I'm hoping to see like time blocks and timetables to start to shift and move, uh, you know, whatever, whatever that looks like. But we still, I mean, the one thing that education will always be for lack, for better or for worse is we babysit kids while parents are at, no, absolutely. at school, you know what I right. mean? Like there's right. a, but we're never going to really activate all of our students' potential until education stops being something that we do to them and starts being something that we do with them. Yeah. And what age? Any age. Any okay. age. We've got awesome examples of lower elementary kids doing really cool stuff at their developmental readiness. Yeah. And when do we still teach them to read, Scott? It's because all, reading is... Right. It's all part of the work, right? Yeah. So, you know, we had a great conversation on... Uh, yesterday's pre-conference session that I did where we, we had this long conversation about also what's the point of teaching kids to read or do math 
if they hate to read or do math. Yeah. Right? Like, congratulations. You learned to read, you hate it, and you never want to do it. <laughs> like, we miss something there, yeah, right? Yeah, right, and, yeah. And so, <laughs> um, so, you know, there's lots of ways to teach reading. There's lots of ways to learn reading, and we know what some best practices are, but we don't have to do that at the cost of extinguishing your love of reading. Mm. Yeah. Right? And if we read in authentic ways around books that we're interested in, and we give you choice and voice about what you read, and we act as facilitators and guides rather than, you know, controllers of everything you do, well, guess what? You're probably more likely to read. So where does testing fit in this? Like, and I'll say, mm -hmm. we're, we're here with these high-powered international schools. Absolutely. Where the IB test or the SAT is the end of the line. And right. they will, for lack of, for, and this is me, because I've been out here for a long time, they will hide behind that. Sure. They will sit on that and yep. say, we would love to do everything you're talking about, but at the end of the day, our kids have to pass the test. Right. So a couple thoughts on that. One is uh, the Hewlett Foundation has been researching these deeper learning schools, yeah. right? places that have really dive deep on project and inquiry-based learning, for example, and make that the major core of what they do. Uh, so places like High Tech High, the New Tech Network, Big Picture Learning, all those schools, right? Yeah. And they've been researching across networks. Um, and what they're finding um, is that they cover less content, but their students generally do better on those standardized tests of content than more Shocking. traditional schools. Mm. Uh, because what they have to do is they have to make some really strategic choices about essential understandings and enduring content and what's really important, and then they go deep on that. Yeah. So the students have really rich understandings of that shorter list of things we need them to know and be able to do. Mm. But they've gone really deep on it rather than living at sort of that mile-wide, inch-deep, shallow curriculum that most yeah. schools have. Now, I know a lot of these high-end international schools would say, well, we're not like that. We get to go deep on stuff and yeah. blah, 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 right? And we're IB and whatever. Um, but bottom line is we seem to have lots of evidence that there's more than one way to get to the destination. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's probably lots of stuff that we're covering that kids aren't really remembering anyway. So why not just go deep on the important stuff? Yeah. Um, and focus on intellectual transfer into new places and so on. Is so the research, of, so the research seems to back that up. Is that one of the things we're seeing though? Is that transferableness, like being able to go deep on something and then going deep on something, helping kids understand how that transferable skill goes across disciplines. So then when it comes time for the test, you can transfer the. The understanding, the knowledge, the skill, the to other, because everybody's saying like I've got to cover everything that's on the test instead of saying going right. deep and saying. Right. But if I go deep and I'm teaching them a transferable skill that they truly understand and can tr transfer, right? And then all of a sudden it's right. Well, one of the criticisms, for example, of American students is that they do so much drill and skill on rote procedures and and knowledge, for example that as soon as you give them something that doesn't look exactly like the 30 practice problems they had at the end of chapter two, no idea. they don't know what to do with it yeah. because it is, right, because they don't have the conceptual understanding. They were just mimicking the procedure from the book or the teacher. Um, whereas in a country, say, like Japan, I think they do a better job of focusing on, you know, their textbooks are thinner, they're focused on more the conceptual acquisition and so on. And then when they see a problem or a scenario or whatever that's a little unfamiliar they're able to carry that conceptual understanding mm. into that and do better so the question for you know these international schools would be is where do you fall along that continuum in terms yeah. of students having you know are they just merely mimicking stuff or do they have that deep rich conceptual knowledge that really allows them to transfer yeah 
I like that. I think that's a major question for every school. Right, right. But we seem to have lots of evidence from places that are going much further on problem-based and inquiry than any international school, mostly. Yeah. Right? And yeah. they're coming out the other end on state assessments and ACTs and whatever <laughs> yeah. just fine. Yeah, doing okay. Just fine, right? Yeah. And so, and I think, you know, the, the other ongoing challenge for any high-achieving school that serves sort of an affluent, educated population is, uh, are your kids doing well in those tests because of what you're doing or yeah. just because of the families they yeah. come from yeah they come from families who right you know ha you know education is important they come from stable homes they're going to get the help they need they're making serious investments they're making serious right. investments and yes you're doing good things in your school yes, and you're creating absolutely. opportunities but if we yeah. fired LV tomorrow at a different curriculum yeah how much worse would they do on the SAT yeah yeah they're going to learn despite us <laughs> right? I was at an international school and I, I said that exact thing I was like you do realize like you can take more risks at an affluent international school where people are paying thirty-five to forty thousand dollars a year for second grade, you can take more risks. <laughs> these kids will be okay. Like, why aren't we risky more? You right, know, in, right. In they have these places, right? They have a stronger foundation for from sure. which to take risks, yeah. but they're also the least likely to do so. Yeah, we're not free and reduced lunch of ninety-five percent. Yeah, your school's you know? not going to get closed in a year <laughs> if you don't get your scores up. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. You know, again, they have all the assets and, and strengths from which to take risks, but they're some of the most least likely people to do so. Yeah, uh, for whatever reasons, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And I think part of it, like for me, I've, I've always found that schools need to almost be in crisis mode before they're willing to take the risk. Well, then you're... Like that's a different, right? Like you get to a point where you're like, we either have to change or we fail. And then you find a way to Well, then you're change. international schools that are charging 20 to 40 grand a kid tuition or you're middle class suburban districts in every city in America, right? They're gonna be the last to change. Yeah. And this is I'm I'm seeing a lot of movement right now with school districts. For example, one of the school districts I worked with didn't pass a, a tech levy for almost ten years. And then they passed a tech levy. So all of a sudden you had teachers who were you know running on Windows XP machines one day <laughs> and have MacBook Pros the next. And went from having maybe one computer that worked in your classroom to being one to one in a year. Right. Like that district went from like it, I called it, I, I was working with this, we called it leapfrogging. Like they didn't, they never had carts. We never worried about the right. whole cart movement. Yeah. Just went from here to here, right. you know, but part of that was is because they were forced to, you know, they were forced, they couldn't pass the money. They couldn't get the, right. they couldn't get to a place where they could have these. And so they, they had to make a, a major shift and their, their test scores were going down. They had nothing to lose. They're one of the worst right. districts in the state, right. you know, and so you have nothing to lose. You make the job. Right. So have you found the teachers yet who don't want the new computers because they can't run Math Blaster? <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had to go through that. Or, or the first thing they want to know is, how do I upload my 500-slide PowerPoint for the kids to get? Right. I'm like, yeah, that's the reason why we gave every kid a laptop, so that they can have. <laughs> but I, I run into that. Like, I was working with a university <clears throat> where that was the question from a professor is the, the professor was struggling and the university was struggling because kids weren't coming to class. Sure. That's why they brought me in. They're like, kids aren't coming to class. What do we do? And so I went in. I was like, well, what are you doing? And I had this professor. He's like, well, I upload the PowerPoint on Monday. He's like, and by Wednesday or Thursday, kids aren't coming in class. And I said, well, what do you do in class? And he goes, I go through the PowerPoint. And I'm like, so why should kids come to class? And he, his answer to me was, don't they know who I am? 
And I said, <laughs> I said, they're 19 years old. They don't care who you are. Right, absolutely. Right? They, right. Don't, they don't care. You gave them. Like, they figure out by Thursday that I can just take the slides, study them, and pass the test. There's, like, you're not, there's no value add in coming to class. Like, I'm just, like, but, but I use that as an example. But on the other end, right. I have a, a high school teacher who has banned the Chromebooks from his classroom because he's giving the lecture on the slides and the kids are fact-checking him on Google and correcting him in the middle of class. So he bans the Chromebooks. Right, because that's the answer. That's the answer. Right. Right. And, and so you still have that, right? You still have that end of it of just right. trying to... Right. But see, but then we deserve every criticism leveled at us. Yeah, Right. If we're operating in those modalities. So, Jeff, I tell people, if you think K-12 moves slow, come to higher ed. <laughs> come to where I work. <laughs> right. We got a long way to go. But you are changing. And I, I'd love to talk about this because we're launching the micro-credentials with the University of Kentucky, who you used to work with. Um, but you and I even had a conversation before this about this idea of, of stackable cr- credentials. And that seems to be a movement that is starting to take hold in, in universities, don't you think? Like yeah, but we've of, got hundreds of universities, yeah. maybe thousands of universities, just in America alone, for example. And the number of folks who are talking about stackable credentials is very slim. It's pretty small, All right. right? But yeah. yeah, so no, it's a movement. It's a little bit of a movement. People are starting to talk. But I like this idea that you can take this and get a certificate, and then I could go take that and get a certificate. And right. How do we start to modulize and chunk this thing so we can get some movement? Yeah, we have to evolve our credentialing mechanisms because mm-hmm. if we don't, somebody else is going to, and they're just going to bypass higher yeah. ed, right? Like, we don't have a credentialing monopoly anymore. To be mm-hmm. honest, high schools don't either. Yeah, it's so true. Um, you know, there's so many ways that kids can show what they know. Um, that don't involve us giving them a diploma or a degree. Well, you got middle schoolers making thousand dollars on YouTube, right? <laughs> right, seriously, right. Exactly. Right. So what's so, your credential? What's your right, high school so diploma mean? As a marketing company, wouldn't you hire that kid as soon as you could, right? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's like in my session today on social media, I was like, go find the kid in your school. You have a student in your school who is making money on YouTube. You just have you just haven't thought Absolutely. that why aren't they making videos for us? Yeah. No, I was working with a school, um, in North Carolina, and I asked, they uh, gave me all their high school students for a little while, and I asked their students to text me interesting things they were doing at home with technology. Yeah. And then, you know, and the reason they texted me rather than posting them so I could filter them, because yeah. <laughs> they're high school kids. Yeah. But then, you know, I was reading aloud, and they're like, I started my own charity, I'm doing this, I'm doing this other thing, right? I have my own business. And I was reading those out loud, and the teachers and, you know, ministers had no idea any of no this idea. stuff was happening. Yeah. Yeah, we don't tap, and I mean that comes full circle to our conversation. But we just don't tap into them enough. We don't know what's what's, no. you know, the stuff that we have sitting. I met a high school kid that he actually like nobody in the high school knew. He has a, a drone review YouTube channel. Oh, nice! To the point where like drone companies send him drones. Yeah, sure. Right. To review because <laughs> he's the drone review guy, and I'm like, you have this guy sitting in class, and nobody's tapping into how-to videos or review videos or you can't get him to engage in English but he's writing persuasive essays every day on YouTube you just don't see it that way yeah we're too siloed you know I go into you know these schools proudly march me down the hall to their awesome graphic design lab where kids are learning how to make this out of the other and I talk with these kids and they're doing really cool work down there right and then you ask them so often do you get to use these skills in Science or yeah. social studies, never. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they had, they build these skill sets in other places. Sometimes even within the school, right? And they just don't get to use them yeah. in in other places. Yeah, so true. 
Cool. Well, thank you. I've taken your time enough. Great to see so, you too. This appreciate is Appreciate it. Uh, it's always good to catch up with somebody that I've been on the interwebs with forever. <laughs> I know. We go way back. I know. It's crazy. So appreciate I've got the gray hair to show it. I appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Shifting Our Schools with your host, Jeff Udick. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit sospodcast.org, facebook.com slash Jeff Udick, and on Twitter at judick. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Shifting Our Schools.